I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. This morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2 and going through verses 1 through 7. And I would encourage you to follow along with me, whether that's your own Bible, whether that's an app, or whether that's the Bible in front of you, where we're going to be on page 595 in that. Starting in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned your your love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Today I want to share a story with you from Serbia. That's a country in Eastern Europe that borders Hungary. The story is about Nina, a young Serbian woman. She got to know Jason and Kimberly, two of the nation, two of the missionaries our church supports in Serbia through our cooperative program giving. As Nina learned about Jesus, she came to understand her need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and she committed her life to him. As they say on those TV ads, but wait, there's more. Nina began praying that her mom, whose name is Ivana, would also come to know Jesus. A few days later, as Ivana was typing on her phone, a message appeared that says, Have you met Jesus? Now, Ivana did not type those words, and they did not come in a message. They just appeared. Ivana accepted that the miracle came from God, and she went to talk to Nina about Jesus. Today, mother, daughter, and a younger sister are believers in Jesus Christ. What a fantastic story of salvation. Let's pray that our missionaries, Jason and Kimberly, can lead many Serbians to Christ as they serve him there. All right, I trust you still have your Bibles open to Revelation. Uh, By the way, um, we're getting ready to get started. Uh, As you noticed, we started our missions moments up again uh, this morning, and hopefully we'll be able to continue that on through the year uh, as our youth read uh, those missions moments every uh, every Sunday, uh, we're, we're going to start including the uh, copy of that mission moment in your bulletin so that we'll be able to follow along while they're reading it, but more importantly than that, so that you have something to maybe stick on your refrigerator at home so that you can remember. I, I know the way that my mind works, you can hear it before the offering and and you think, okay, yep, I'm, I'm going to remember to pray for those fo- folks in Serbia. But then as soon as we walk out the door, maybe I'm unique about that, but as soon as I walk out the door, I've I've forgotten them. So hopefully we'll be able to take that insert home with us and stick it up on the bulletin. On the front side of it will be uh, the missions moment for the week, and then on the back side of it is a weekly devotional uh, that different pastors throughout our state convention, the SBCV, uh, have written. So hopefully it will be a benefit to you, something that you can take home. Uh, for your own 
edification. I hope you uh, have your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2. <laughs> and you might be thinking, well, what are we doing in Revelation? We've been in Acts forever. Well, we're still kind of in Acts. We'll be continuing in the book of Acts uh, really uh, kind of this week and then starting next week and as we move on until we finish the book of Acts. But we have just finished before we got into Advent season and we uh, preached that Advent series. Uh, before that, we had just finished Paul's third missionary journey where he had spent three years at the church at Ephesus, pastoring the church at Ephesus. Well, I thought that that would be a good time as the last message that we preached in Acts was in Acts chapter 20 when Paul uh, said his goodbyes to the to his fellow pastors there at Ephesus, and that's really the last time that he would be there. So I figured it would be a good time for us to reflect on the church at Ephesus, reflect on its beginnings and how it proceeded, and on into where we get this letter in the book of Revelation. You have an insert in your bulletin that hopefully will help you uh, to follow along with the chronology of the events that happened at the church at Ephesus. You can take that and uh, do with it what you will, but hopefully it will help you as we as we go through that. But it's the first Sunday of the new year, and with the first Sunday of the new year comes all these revol- re- revolutions. Ah. <laughs> all, all these resolutions, and I know probably the number one resolution that is, is given in our country is to lose weight. Now, I'm not the only one that struggles with that, I don't think. I won't call out any names. <laughs> But don't you wish that you could lose weight as easily as you can gain it? Man, I wish that that was the case. I, I wish that you could, you know, gaining weight, it, it's never something that happens overnight. It's something that happens typically slowly over time. And then before you know it, you get like me and you walk by the, the, the plate glass display in some store while you're doing your Christmas shopping and you're like, who is that fat fellow? Oh, wait. Before you know it, you don't even recognize your reflection in the mirror. Now, many of us, most of us, I would say, start off life with some degree of fitness. We, we start off that way, and then many times that fitness starts turning to flab. Often that happens right around the time we get married, doesn't it, fellas? <laughs> But that level of fitness, it turns to flab. And then before you know it, if you don't check that, then that flab starts to turn to fat. And then if you don't get control of that fat, then you get to a place where you can't get around too well, and all of a sudden you're feeble. And then if you're not careful, that feebleness can lead to fatality. When you're fatal, it's too late to do anything about it, isn't it? When you're feeble, it might be nearly impossible to do anything about it. Certainly very difficult. When you're fat, it's really, really hard to do anything about it. The time to do something about it is just when that flab starts to set in. When you're just a bit flabby, that's the time to start doing something about it. Now, of course, I'm not just talking about our physical health here. That's not what we gather in this place to do. I'd be sad, I'd be sad having to leave my preaching too, honey. That'd break break my heart. (laughs) 
course, I'm not just talking about our physical health here. I'm talking about our spiritual health. Most of the time, our spiritual health, we, we can we can liken to what we see in many churches. Most of the time, when you see a new church, when you see a church being planted, all oh, they start off really well. Well, they got to start off really well. They got to start off being evangelistic, reaching out to their neighbors, doing all that kind of stuff, because if they don't, they're going to die, right? They'll never grow to the point where they can be self-sustaining. New churches have to be on mission if they're going to survive. But then they get to the point where, you know, they grow to the point where the bills start being able to be paid, right? And then they get a little bit of money in the bank, and then they get people in the pews, and they get a regular preacher in the pulpit. And when all those things start to happen in the church, comfort can set in, can it? Nothing brings on flabbiness quicker than comfort. When comfort starts to set in, when flabbiness sets to start in, that's, or starts to set in, that's when things become, that's when churches become internally focused. That's when churches start worrying about what's best for us and not what's needed outside of our walls. The church starts focusing more on us and our wants and preferences and desires than it does on the lost people outside of the doors. Kids get fussed at for messing up things in an internally focused church. Facilities start to be preserved rather than purposed for outreach and ministry. People start looking at God's things and God's money and start looking at it like it's ours to hold on to. And then before we know it, that flabbiness turns to fat. And before you know it, it turns to feeble. And then it turns fatal. We see that all around us, don't we? We see churches all around us either dead and don't know it or won't admit it and dying. The question is, why does that happen? Does it have to happen? Why does it happen? And what can we do to keep that from ever happening here? Because I don't want to ever see that here. Do you? Do you? So what can we do to prevent it from happening here? This morning we're going to find the answers to those questions in this letter that God inspired the Apostle John to write to the church at Ephesus that he's already written to and that was planted back in Acts. If you've been here for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Acts together. And when we started Paul's missionary journey a few months ago, we talked significantly about this church at Ephesus. We talked about how Aquila and Priscilla planted it when Paul and Priscilla and Aquila came down from Corinth and they got to Ephesus and, and then Paul left uh, left Ephesus and went back to Antioch. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. They planted the church. Apollos came in for a while and preached. They trained him up and sent him back to Corinth. And then about the time that Apollos went back up to Corinth, then Paul came back through on his third missionary journey and landed there in Ephesus and stayed there as their pastor for three years. Now, we've already talked about all of that, but I want to refresh your memory about what happened during those three years. Three years isn't a very long time. And during those three short years, God used that church at Ephesus to proclaim the gospel 
throughout the entire region. Not just through the town of Ephesus or the city of Ephesus, but God used that church to proclaim the gospel all throughout Asia Minor to the point that the Bible says that every resident of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. That's not an exaggeration. But not only did that happen, they planted at least eight new churches in three years. There's no doubt about it that the church at Ephesus was on mission. There's no doubt about it that the church at Ephesus was doing what all local churches are called to do. There's no doubt about it that the church at Ephesus was doing what Parkview Baptist Church is called to do. Well, they started strong, right? So since they started strong, of course they stayed strong, right? Well, let's look at their history. Like I said, you can use that timeline to follow along with this history. And it's an approximate history. You can go in different sources and find variations on that, but this is, this is pretty, pretty close. But less than a decade after Paul left the church at Ephesus, after he had that last meeting with the elders there, uh, at, at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, less than a decade after that, he wrote them a letter. And that letter's in our Bibles. It's called Ephesians. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus. And as you read that, and if you've been with us on Thursday nights as we've been going through the book of Ephesus, you, you remember that Ephesians is all about right doctrine and right living. Right understanding of God and His Word and right living because of that. Now, the people at Ephesus, they desperately needed to hear that. They desperately needed to hear that because in that decade between when Paul warned the pastors there that false teachers would come in their midst, it happened. False teachers had come into their midst and was, and they were, they were teaching this wrong understanding of salvation. So they desperately needed that. These people were twisting the gospel. They were wolves in amongst the sheep. They were leading people astray. So Paul wrote this beautiful letter, Ephesians, to them. Well, surely that fixed the problem, didn't it? (laughs) Well, apparently not. Because sometime after that letter of Ephesians was written, sometime after that, Paul sent Timothy there to be the pastor. So Timothy became the pastor at Ephesus, and then a few years after writing Ephesians, a few years after Timothy had become the pastor there, then Paul had to write Timothy a letter, the one that we know of as 1 Timothy. And in that letter to 1 Timothy, Paul told Timothy, he said, look, I'm charging you with doing some certain things because things are messed up in your church. One of the first things that he charged him with was getting the leadership straightened out. Don't put up with false teaching in your church. Don't put up with leadership that is teaching false things in your church. Don't put up with ungodly leadership in the church. The consistent message in the book of Ephesus and the consistent message to the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy is right doctrine, right living, and right leadership. Well, then a few years after that, during Paul's second and his final Roman imprisonment. Remember when he was in a cave and all he had was basically something to write with. And he he wrote to Timothy and he said, Timothy, would you send me my books and would you send me a a coat because it's cold here? 
This was the last letter. Second Timothy was the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And when he wrote that, amazingly enough, it carries the same themes as First Timothy and the same general themes as Ephesus. You're still dealing with ungodly leadership in the church, false teachers, and the faithful teaching and preaching of the gospel. Right doctrine, right leadership, right living. So here we are years after the church had been planted, and they were still dealing with those same issues. Well, you have to ask yourself, did they finally, after that third letter, did they finally get it? Did they finally start to fix those issues? Well, history tells us that the Apostle John joined the church at Ephesus right around the time that Second Timothy and Paul's subsequent execution, right about the time of that, sometime around 67 or 68 A.D. And it was from Ephesus that the Apostle John wrote his Gospel of John and First, Second, and Third John. And John and Timothy were, maybe they were functioning as co-pastors, don't really know, but John and Timothy were both serving that church until John was arrested and sent into exile on a place called Patmos, an island called Patmos. It was there on that island, after he'd been exiled from his home church at Ephesus, it was there on that island that Jesus spoke to John and he gave him these series of letters, starting with a letter to his own church at Ephesus. This passage that we just read in Revelation. Let's look at the first part of that again in verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> he said, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. By the way, when it says to the angel in these letters in the book of Revelation, angel is the same word as, as can be translated messenger, and it's specifically referring to the pastors of those churches that Jesus is holding securely in his hand. The angel, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Well, that's quite a word of commendation, isn't it? See, for 40 years, the church at Ephesus had been told over and over and over again that they needed to get their leadership right, they needed to get their doctrine right, and they needed to get their living right. It looks like they finally learned their lesson, doesn't it? Look at what Jesus commends them for. First, He commends them for their works. In other words, they've been doing good stuff. They've been doing the works that we're called to do as believers. They've been feeding the poor. They've been taking care of the orphans and the widows. They fed the, fed the hungry. They would give the shirt off their backs when they needed to. They did good works. In other words, they were living right. second thing that Jesus commended them for was their hard work. They'd been working hard. Jesus commended them for their toil. And that word that's translated toil, it carries the idea of working till absolute exhaustion. Well, church life hadn't changed much in the last 2,000 years, has it? When you give yourself wholly to the work of the church, it's exhausting. And these folks had been working to the point of complete exhaustion. 
They did good works. They worked extremely hard. And they exhibited patient endurance. Now, the word patient endurance, when, when Jesus said this, He's not talking about how they were enduring persecution, even though they had done that. But this patient endurance that He's talking about, He's talking about being steadfast. He's talking about being faithful. He's talking about having fortitude. And Jesus, we know this because Jesus gives us a couple of examples of what He's talking about here. In verse 2, He says that they had identified the false teachers in their midst and they had flushed them out of the church. They were being faithful. And then in verse 6, it talks about this this group of people who we don't know a whole lot about, the Nicolaitans. There's some speculation about where they came from, but regardless of where they came from, they were they were a cult. They were a group of false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And Jesus said, I commend you because you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. So they weren't putting up with false teaching. They weren't putting up with bad leadership. In other words, after 40 years, they finally got the point to where they were steadfast in their doctrine. They were steadfast in holding to the right kind of leadership. They'd fixed the problems that they'd had for years, for a couple of generations. Their doctrine was right. Their living was right. They were a good church with excellent teaching, orthodox doctrine, and good works in the church and in the community. That sounds like a good church to me, doesn't it to you? I mean, that sounds like, you know, if you're looking for a church, that sounds like a good one to join. But Jesus was so disappointed with this church that He threatened to shut them down. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, but, this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That means that Jesus was going to remove Himself from their presence. Unless you repent. That church, that good church that was doing those good things, that had their doctrine right, had their leadership right, that church Jesus was threatening to shut down. I thought they'd finally got all their problems straightened out. Thank goodness, they'd been working 40 years to get all those things straightened out, and now it seems like they finally had. Their doctrine was great. Their leadership was godly and biblically qualified. Their teaching was pure. It was orthodox. Their works were good. They fed the hungry. They took care of the widows and the orphans. They helped the poor. So what went so wrong that Jesus said, I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm going to shut your doors. Verse 4 says that they abandoned their first love. They abandoned their first love. Now, did that mean that they quit loving Jesus? I don't think so. Because according to verse 5, their abandoned love led them to quit doing the works that they did at first. See, they didn't abandon their love for Jesus. They abandoned their love for Jesus' mission, for the work that Jesus had called them to do. You remember all the works that that church at Ephesus did? during the three years that Paul was there. 
Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says, All, all, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, it's talking about Asia Minor. What we know of is Turkey. They were a multiplying church. Paul made disciples of Christ who in turn, those disciples of Christ made disciples of Christ, who in turn, those disciples of Christ made disciples of Christ. They were multiplying disciples just like Jesus calls us to do. And within three short years, all the people of their region had heard the word of the Lord from that one church. But that wasn't the only work they did at first. Not only were they multiplying disciples, they were multiplying churches. In its first three years of existence, the church at Ephesus planted at least eight churches. Colossae, Hierapolis, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Those are the ones that are listed in Scripture. Who knows if they planted any more than that. But eight churches were planted from that one church in its first three years. I mean that they were responsible. They didn't just throw these things out there. No, that church at Ephesus, they were responsible. They took the responsibility of training up and raising up pastors for those churches. They took the responsibility for initially funding those churches. They took the responsibility for launching and guiding and nurturing those churches. They took the responsibility of, just like you would birth a child, of birthing those churches. And it certainly like the, wasn't like the church at Ephesus was some giant megachurch. Now, the closest we had to a megachurch in the New Testament was the church at Jerusalem before Jesus scattered it with persecution. The church at Ephesus wasn't some megachurch with unlimited resources. No, they did it out of their willingness. They did it out of their own sacrifice. They did it out of their own obedience. They did it because they loved Jesus' mission that much. They multiplied disciples and they multiplied churches. Not only did they do it out of their love for Jesus' mission, they did it out of their love for Jesus' mission to bring new life to their neighbors and the nations. But somewhere along the way, they lost that love. Somewhere along the way, they got so focused on fixing their doctrine and fixing their leader, fixing all of those things which they needed to do, they got so focused on those things being a pure church, they forgot what their mission was. And a little over 40 years later, this is what Jesus told them. He said, I'm happy you got your leadership right. Happy you got your doctrine right. I'm pleased with your good works. I'm happy that you're steadfast and you're tireless in your efforts, but if you don't get back to doing my mission, then I will close your doors. If you don't start multiplying disciples, if you don't start multiplying churches, I'm going to raise up other churches who will do it. If you don't start bringing new life to your neighbors and the nations, you might still continue to have services. You might still have a sign out in your parking lot, but I am not going to be there. I don't know about you, but that's horrifying to me. That's a terrifying thought to me. It's horrifying to think that we can have solid teaching and preaching. 
It's horrifying to me to think that we can have biblically qualified leadership. It's horrifying to me to think that we can have good organization and good structure. It's horrifying to me that, that to think that we can even have have a reputation of doing good works in our community. But if we're not on mission, then we're toast. That's not a biblical word, but it could be. We're toast. Sure, we might exist as Parkview Baptist Church for a long time with all of those good things. We, we might even grow a little bit with all of those good things. But if we abandon the love for Jesus' mission of multiplying disciples and multiply, multiplying churches, He will not be with us. That's terrifying. It's terrifying to think that our lampstand would be gone. So how do we keep that from happening? How can we keep from having that fatal flaw that the church at Ephesus had? You do it the same way you fight fat. You do it when it's just a little bit of flab long before it gets fatal. You know, it's a good thing to fight physical flab this year, physical fat, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, pray for me as I try to do that. It's a good thing to do that, but it is an essential thing that we as a church fight spiritual flab. Our doctrine and teaching, I have all the confidence that our doctrine and teaching are sound. Our works in the church and in the community are good. They can always be better, but, but they're good. I am so thankful for all the really hard workers who are working themselves to exhaustion in this church. I'm thankful for all of those things. But if we as a church have one area where we're flabby, it's in our love for Jesus' mission. I don't think anybody can debate this. We don't multiply disciples like we should. Just and and I I don't know that we've ever multiplied churches. Just like the church at Ephesus, if we don't do those things, Jesus might just shut us down. So how are we going to fight this flab before it becomes fatal? Look back at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus gives us three things to do. This is not a complicated list that He gives us. He gives us three things to do. For the church at Ephesus, they'd gone way beyond flab to feeble and almost fatal. Well, I want us to get rid of the flab before it turns to any of that stuff. That leaves us with three things to do this coming year. So if you were looking for three things to put on your resolution list this year, here they are. Three things for us as a church to do. The first thing that we need to do is we need to remember. Jesus commanded the church at Ephesus to remember where they had fallen from. They needed to remember how 40 years ago they had multiplied disciples to the point that that whole region heard the Word of the Lord. They needed to remember 40 years ago back to the point where they had planted eight different churches in a three-year span. That's what they needed to remember. They had that in their past to remember. Well, I don't know how much of that we have in our past to remember. But here's what we do need to remember. 
We need to remember the mission that Jesus has called us to. Whether we have that stuff in our past or not, really that's not the issue. The issue is that we remember that Jesus has called us to that mission. We need to remember that we are new lives bringing new life to our neighbors and the nations. We need to remember that each one of us is supposed to be multiplying disciples. And all of us together are supposed to be multiplying churches. And as we remember what we're supposed to be doing, we're going to start seeing that we're not really doing it. When Jesus commands us to do something that we're not doing, you know what He asks us to do? He asks us to do the next thing. He asks us to repent. Repenting. Repenting is a whole lot more than just, yep, I know I didn't do right. God, that's just, you know, God, you made me shy. You made me introverted. So that whole multiplying disciples thing, that whole making disciples thing, you know, God, you didn't make me that way. So I acknowledge I should be doing that, but you know how you made me. That's not repentance. That's not even confession. Because if Jesus commands you to do something, when you step out to do it, He will equip you to do what He calls you to do. Now, repentance is acknowledging where you've fallen short, acknowledging the mission that He's called you to, and turning from how you failed to do that and turning to doing it. It's about acknowledging the problem and resolving to do better. Now, of course, you're not going to do better in your own strength. You're resolving to do better in the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. You're saying, Lord, I know that I have failed you in that. And Lord Jesus, Lord God, if you would give me the strength and give me the power, Father, give me the, the strength from your Holy Spirit to do what you've called me to do, then by your grace, I'm going to do it. That's what repentance is. Turning from disobedience and turning to obedience in Christ. And when that happens, that automatically leads us to the third command that Jesus gives, gave the church at Ephesus and gives to us. He told them to remember, then He told them to repent, and then He told them to respond. Folks, it's time for each of us as individuals to quit talking about multiplying disciples and start making them. Start doing it. It means each of us is going to have to start making relationships with people who need Jesus. That's difficult, but God's given each of us a, a, a sphere of influence. He's given each of us people around us in our lives, contact with people in our lives. And He expects us to build relationships with them and teach them about Jesus. Talk to them about Jesus. Share the gospel with them. Well, you know, I just, I just share the gospel with my lifestyle. I just try to live like Jesus in front of them, kind of hope it by osmosis reaches them. Well, yes, you should live like Jesus, but you should live like Jesus as a testimony of what the words that you say about Jesus to back them up. Verbally give the gospel. That's what we're called to do. And when we share the gospel with people, and when some of those people get saved, 
And we need to bring those people into the church with us so that they can be baptized and so that they can be taught Scripture, so that they can be taught all the things that Jesus has told us. And then we need to encourage them and train them and teach them by our own example and by our own words. We need to train them and teach them to make disciples on their own. That's how multiplication works. You make a disciple of Christ. That disciple of Christ makes a disciple of Christ while you're making another disciple of Christ. That's how multiplication works. That's what we're called to do. That's multiplying disciples. And that's the mission that Jesus has given us. But that's not all we need to do. Because it's time for us as a church to quit talking about multiplying churches and start preparing to do it. Oh, but we're, we're not ready. We're not this. We're not that. None of us is ready, right? If something doesn't happen within the next five to ten years, we are going to see dozens and dozens and dozens of sick and dying churches in our area, in our associations, close the doors. That breaks my heart. As we speak, Jesus is actively removing the lampstands of churches that for years have abandoned the love of the mission that He's given them, and they're closing their doors. I don't know what God has for us. Who knows? God might be calling us to revitalize or replant some of those some of those churches. Who knows? God might be calling us to plant healthy churches in the fields where those churches that have died have abandoned and left without a gospel witness. I don't know. I don't know how God's going to lead us. But here's what I know. Anytime in my life that I haven't known exactly what God's going to do one or two or five or ten years down the road, I know that every time He has called me to prepare for whatever it might be. And I know He's doing the same thing for us. I don't know what He has for us in the next six months. I don't know what He has for us in the next six minutes, much less the six months or the next year or the next five or ten years. I don't know. But I know we better get prepared. I know we can see the need. And I know we better be prepared. So this is what I'm asking for you this coming year. First, I'm asking you to fight FLAB this year by remembering your mission. Second, I'm asking you to fight FLAB this year by remembering all the ways that you have failed to accomplish your mission in the past. Third, I'm asking you to fight FLAB this year by responding to the call and start making disciples. Who will make disciples? Who will make disciples? See, if God has given you new life in Christ, then He has called you to love His, His mission. You can't say that you love Jesus and don't love the mission that He's called you to. If He's given you new life, He's called you to love His mission. He has called you to bring new life to our neighbors and the nations. Don't lose that love like the church at Ephesus did. Let's fight the flab and let's get going before it becomes fatal, shall we? Let's pray. Father, you've laid out your your mission 
your desire. You've laid that out so clearly in your Scripture. And Father, it's so easy for us to sit back and and see it and see that it's hard and see that it's not something that we've done before and that and we can come up with a with a jillion excuses as to why we're not doing what you called us to do. Father, I thank you for those this year that we've seen saved. I thank you for how we've seen people this past year following your example in baptism. Father, I thank you for all the people who have come to be part of this fellowship, this family, this covenant family of believers. I thank you for all of that, Father. I thank you for how you have added to us. But Father, even as we see those that you have added to us, Father, it only reminds us of how far we are from truly multiplying disciples. How far we are from multiplying churches. So Father, corporately for our church, I I want to confess that to You. I want to confess our failure, confess our sin to You. Father, corporately as a body, as I confess that, Lord, I ask that You, by the power of Your Holy Spirit in us, that You would give us the strength and the conviction and the courage to be obedient. Whatever that obedience might look like. Father, I'm reminded of the time when the little boy Samuel said, Here am I. Send me. Not having a clue what that meant. So Lord, I'd ask that You would give us that courage that steadfastness, that fearlessness, that faithfulness, that faith to be able to trust You enough to say that. Well, Father, we know that, that the years tick off and that old years are replaced with new years. And there tends to be just a a sunshiny, cheery outlook to resolutions and all of those things, but they tend to fade off in just a short period of time. Lord, I would ask that our repentance would be real. That our repentance would be so much more than just a resolution. And that, Father, we would truly, in this coming year, each of us as individual believers and us corporately as a church, that we would do the work that You called us to do. Now, Lord, if there's one in our midst who's never trusted Christ as Lord and Master and Savior, oh, Father, I'd ask that just through the preaching of Your text, Father, that Your Spirit would convict them, that Your Spirit would draw them, and that they would be saved. Father, we trust all things to You, and this time is Yours. In Jesus' name, Amen.